Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Listeners, fans of Dark Knight of the Podcast, today's a big day. It's a big day. You're all invited to the party because Dark Knight of the Podcast is officially 21. She's legal to drink and we're going to get wasted. (laughs) White girl wasted with Roger and Troy. (laughs) Yes, indeed. As I drink my white girl Bud Light seltzer, as we speak. <laughs> I've got a jar, a mason jar filled with red wine. Right. right oh, yeah. See, our, the viewers, our listeners Cheers. can't see this. But, yeah, we are definitely drinking some white oh. girl drinks. But that's fine because, you know, this is, for, especially for this yeah. particular episode. It, well, we're 21. I mean, that's what you do. <laughs> and it's, it's the strip club after this. Mm-hmm. You're telling me. You're telling me. So, yeah, 20, 21 episodes. I... I'm very uh, excited about that. I didn't, you know, I didn't, when we started this, I, I didn't know how long it would go and, you know, if people would listen and it's, I, I, it's going strong and we are, we are planning well into the future. So I think we'll probably reach, you know, retirement age here. <laughs> Fingers <quick>. crossed. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, no, you know what? I, in my mind, I thought, you know, if we can make it past 20, it's going to be, to me, it's going to be a real thing that I'm committing time to. And you know what? We fucking did it. And I'm committing time to it. And I'm really enjoying the response. Listeners, you seem to be uh, keeping up. And uh, we're very appreciative of that. We appreciate the re- recent surge of support and, and re- uh, suggestions and recommendations. And all of these are things that you're going to see from us in the near future, as well as uh, maybe some special guests coming up in the next few weeks. We'll talk about that after the review. Yes, we have exciting things to talk about after the review. But um, first things first, let's get down to brass tacks. Troy, we've got... A fucking good one on our hands this week. Yes, we do. Messiah of evil, Messiah of evil, Messiah of evil. You deserve so much more recognition than you are given. <laughs> you know what? I agree. As someone who, as a person who has not seen this film uh, before you recommended it, I was literally, and I mean, I don't want to spoil a review. Obviously, we're going to gush over the film, okay, but whatever. But I was just completely like blown away by this film and the fact that a it, I've never seen it before and B it's not way more well-known because this, there are some sequences in this film that are among the creepiest, most disturbing shit I've ever seen in my life. Oh my God. It, um, yeah, it, you know, it, it, it's a film from 1973, just, which know, it does not, it does not, you know, feel it way. doesn't feel like that at all. I had to keep checking the date because I'm like, this looks way, Later than 73. Beyond the visuals of it, because if you look at like the makeup and everything, it's very of the era, but you know what? The pacing, yes. the usage of sound effects, mm-hmm. um, the, the the overall 
artistry of the execution of the suspense and the horror is so ahead of its time. And honestly, a lot of the acting, a lot of this acting, when I think of like early 70s cinema, I think of a lot of like larger than live performances, like things that still felt kind of like, you know, big and showy. And like some of the performances in this are actually very good, very understated. Um, uh, especially, uh, the character of Laura, I think, um, is really well played. And, um, you know, we'll get more into this as we go in, just the who's, what's, and why's of it. But, um, there's a lot of things about this movie that, uh, elevate it and help it withstand the test of time. If anything, I think if people who have not seen this movie watch this movie, they are going to immediately want to add it to their collection. And I don't know if that's how you feel. We'll know as we go into this review, but it should be honored as one of the more groundbreaking pieces of cinema that transitioned out of that cheese dicky, you know, when you think of like 60s, like kind of that sci-fi horror, transitioned out of that and into the more violent and artistic horror of the 70s. And, you know, eventually bridging into the Italian horror and everything that we see. There's a lot of that influence I see in this movie. And it's 1973. It's the early 70s. Yeah. Uh, lighting, atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it uh, kind of gave me a, a Suspiria vibe. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, Suspiria was 77. Mm-hmm. So, and this was, I, I just could not believe this was from 73. It just looks, I mean, you're, the care, yes, the style, the fashion is very 70s. I mean, from a aesthetic, uh, it does not look like a 70s film, and it, 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 it's very timeless, I think. I mean, I think the film, it, it does, it definitely does, it looks like it could be of today. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, there are so many things to, 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 as you said, gush about with this film. Let's kind of get into the, um, like the behind the scenes, what 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 makes this movie tick? I think really honestly, the, the script itself, though convoluted upon first viewing, if you this is a film to the viewers, I want to say, watch it once and then go back and watch it again. Like go back and really listen to the dialogue. You think this movie's convoluted, but honestly, as you listen to there's a lot of like journal entries and voiceovers and this is telling the entire story of everything you need to know going on in this and the the script is just really well executed and the direction is really amazing and the team uh behind this it was directed by um willard hyuk i hope i'm saying that right and uh, gloria katz and this is the team who directed the movie howard the duck which i mean light years different the difference between these two movies is is insane but how are the duck but they did produce the screenplays for american graffiti and indiana jones and the temple of doom so in their own right they have their own kind of legacy within the world of cinema so this is the team behind this and uh honestly it's expertly directed it is it is and i also noticed the art one of the art directors for the film is jack fisk who um he's a he's married to sissy spacek Mm. and he is he's done a lot of art direction set design production design for um, a lot of really uh well-received films he got two oscar nominations for production design for um the revenant and there will be blood so he you can definitely tell from this film that the art direction of this film is really great so it Oh my god the 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 visual the moments in which this movie stuns it 
it blows me away. And and I, I you know, and this will be described as we go through this review because we do go through it linearly, linearly. Um, and and I, and I like that approach. But I've got to say, like right off the bat, that is one thing I think I'm going to be raising up the most is just the visual showmanship that this movie delivers. It is stunning. It is stunning. It is, as you said, ahead of its time. And there are moments, there are full sequences that are executed. Uh, they, they, they should be celebrated as pieces of art in my mind. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I don't want to get too carried away. We'll, we'll get into the storyline, but I really just do want to acknowledge that, you know, this movie needs to be seen. If you have not seen this film, and I know we say this very often, but go and watch this movie. Yeah, I mean, we're going to give that disclaimer right now. If you have not seen Messiah of Evil, please stop this uh, and go watch it. Watch it twice because it is a film that you do have to pay attention to. It's a very talky film in parts, but the talky part of the film gives a lot of information that makes a lot of what is happening in the film that initially might seem confusing and just like off the wall out of nowhere it makes it make sense so you got to pay attention so that's what we're going to ask and so come back and listen to this when you've watched this film and yeah i say we just we we go into it i mean i mean i i yeah. really don't have anything new and exciting to talk about so yeah I, I mean to be honest this movie is what has been exciting for me this week i you know upon watching it you know revisiting it i've just been very excited about um about picking this apart. So yeah, I feel like let's just dive into it. Um, and one thing you said, you know, this is pre-Suspiria, but my God, does it give me um, moment? Are there, there are moments that I feel the same way I felt when I watched Suspiria. So when you're listening to this review, I, I, I want to give that kind of vibe that that's very surreal yes. from beginning to end. It's very um, almost like outer body at times. It's, it's very well executed. So the opening of the, the film, and it starts on a weird note. It opens with this ballad. <laughs> It's like the completely like last style of music I would expect from this sequence, but in a weird way it works because the movie is so intentionally like disjointed at times. And I do believe they had a share of like a fair share of production issues while creating this film. So I almost feel like there are times that were maybe like choices that were make it made over the course of, of creating this movie. Choices were made to like bridge pieces together that in some ways make it feel kind of confusing but in other ways it almost adds to it because the whole experience of this kind of curse this this curse that we'll go into of what's calling coming over this town of point dune but so it opens with a sequence of this um this gentleman just being chased through the town you don't know who he is you're given no exposition he's just being chased through this town and he trips and he looks up and he sees a child a girl a young girl and uh, basically, she admits him into her backyard where he locks the door and he's, he, he collapses from exhaustion uh, from having been chased by this. You know, you don't see who it is, but you see this guy's exhausted. And basically, she comes up to him and he kisses her on the hand. He's obviously very thankful, looking at her as though she's saved him, as though she's helped him. And then, bam, out of nowhere, the girl takes out a switchblade and she slices this dude's throat and it like cuts to red. And it's like Messiah of fucking evil. And it just launches right into it. The lighting in this this opening scene, it's like there's almost like a pool in the backyard. So the blue like waves of the pool it is bouncing off like the use of red lighting. So it looks really cool. That's kind of the first little Suspiria type or Argento type vibe I got from this film. The, the opening, yeah, very shock. I mean, I wouldn't say shocking, but I mean, maybe shocking for 73. We've seen a lot of stuff like this since then. But my question was, as far as it tying to the rest of the film, Mm-hmm. It, I guess it it does. It's just never like 
strongly connected to the rest of the film, if that makes sense. No, but it's alluded to in one of the next sequences coming up. And the one thing about this is, is I think you're meant to, I think this is an example of a film where you're supposed to put some pieces together for yourself. Yes. And I did catch the, the, the scene that is alluded to after, you know, but it was just like, it's kind of a weird way to start this particular film. Yes. Yes. This is, as I said, this is a movie that it it does you well to watch this a second and a third time. Like, once you get an idea. Yeah, because watching the opening scene, you may think, hey, this is just going to be a cheesy early 70s slasher flick. And it's not. There's motivation to what what happens. There's motivation to who he is. There's motivation to what this girl is or what's come over her, causing her to to commit this murder. It's explained, but you've really got to listen to it. As we said before, and you'll really get an idea for this as the movie goes on. But um, right from that, it launches into a, a completely different vibe. It goes into a voiceover. And the opening monologue, I... I think this monologue's fucking amazing. Um, it really, it, it sends vibes of Judy O'Day in, the, in Night of the Living Dead when she's having her Barbara breakdown, this kind of mentally unstable breakdown. And everyone knows I'm a fan of Night of the Living Dead, so obviously that's going right, to rub me the right way. But um, uh, again, this monologue, it gives you a whole lot of story if you listen to it. You're introduced to this character of Arletti who basically describes she's in an institution. She's been put there against her will. They're not listening to her, and she's trying to warn people about something that's coming. She's trying to warn people of something she's experienced and um, uh, of, of what stemmed from the events that took place in this town. And the events are what you start to see unfold. Yeah, there's a lot of exposition. I had to listen to the this monologue. Well, I watched the film four times, believe it or not, but I had to listen to this carefully each time because there is a lot thrown at you. Yeah, she talks about she was a town that used to be called Port Bethlehem. Now it's called Port Dune. Um, and something happened to her there. She doesn't really get into it in this monologue. She alludes to make, that it was something horrible and that there are now a group of people that are going to be coming for not only her, but for like everybody. We're all in danger because of, of what's happening in this town. And then there is that really unsettling end part of the monologue where she's like, no one will hear you scream. Oh my god. Right away, they give you one of the most like blood-curdling screams. It is one of the most... I can't even recreate it. I'm gonna it's like throaty. But it is one of the best screams I've ever heard in a movie. And it's super yeah. creepy. Yeah, and you're basically like, you're watching the silhouette of her ascend, the, or like, make its way down this hallway. Yes! That's another thing, is you don't ever see... You don't see the actress. Like, you don't see her. You see a silhouette. You can tell she, it's in a like an asylum gown. The shot is... Stationary, just the camera just focused on the hallway. And as she's telling the monologue, the figure, which is supposed to be her, is slowly just walking down this long hallway that's that's lit with just this like yellow lighting. And then when she gets to the very end of the hallway, right by the camera, that's when she kind of collapses against the wall and does that. And no one will hear you scream right into the camera. And it is very unsettling, very well done, very well executed, very creepy. I think three words you're going to hear me say throughout this podcast, so get used to it, is creepy, atmospheric, and surreal. Yeah, I mean, if I were to use three words to just sum up this movie in general, honestly, that's it. I'm on the exact same page. And the thing I really love about this shot, and this is something that you're going to, again, I think, see consistently throughout the film because it's so expertly crafted, is this shot very much, to me, symbolizes 
uh, the character's mental state at that point. It's shot mm-hmm. like, you know, in the distance, she's very blurry, out of focus. You're right, it's completely stationary, but she eventually comes to a place where she's in focus, but she collapses against the wall and is hidden by her hair. So you don't even see her face the whole time. But when she unleashes that scream, you see just her twitch. You see her, like, hair and her body twitch, and it's just very, like, visceral. There's a rawness to this whole monologue and to this this response that you're getting from this character that like, it's really giving you a great idea of what's to come of what got her to this place mentally. Um, So immediately you're, you're launched into a series of flashbacks that are the bulk of the movie in which you see her, um, our lady, you you finally see her. She's absolutely stunning. She, she's played by Mariana Hill and she um, is a beautiful actress with amazing eye makeup. Whoever did her makeup in this I deserved an award. Um, but so she's on her way to Point Dune, the town that has been mentioned a few times already. This is the, the focus of the movie. And basically her father has uh, set up residence in Point Dune now for some time. And he is an artist and he has been living here creating art. And he's basically just gone silent. She hasn't been able to make any contact with him. Um, and so finally she's coming to find her father to see what's happened where he is and if he's all right yes and it's a voiceover like a lot of the a lot of the exposition is coming through a voiceover so she's driving in her car to point dune as we're hearing her voiceover of the film she comes upon a gas station a mobile station they must have paid some money to get their sign in the film like 90 times because it flashes the mobile station sign like 50 times in the scene um but she pulls it in this gas station and she gets out and right away it's just kind of an unsettling sight because the gas station attendant is like off in the distance like shooting at stuff in the just in the woods in the darkness um and so he comes back and he, he told he tells her it's oh it's stray dogs it's just stray dogs um and again i think that this film at this point even though this was 73, even this gas station looks like quite modern. I don't know what I keep saying that, but like, this is like, it looks, it does not look like a gas station. I would expect in 73. It's very modern looking. The gas pumps are very elaborate. I don't know. I just picked it very well yeah. lit. It's, it's very big, well lit. It's, a lot know, of signs yeah. are huge for the, for the mobile station. Um, but she tells them, she tells him, or she mentions to him that she is, Hey, isn't that point noon right down the street? And he's like, Right away, he's like, well, I, yeah, but I don't understand why anybody would want to go to Port Dune. At the same moment, this red truck pulls up. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, for, for, first of all, one little quick thing, and, and upon, since we've watched this a few times, and this is a spoiler-based review, one thing I want to acknowledge is I like, this movie alludes to itself a lot the simplicities of it he's firing into the, the the woods he's saying you know it's dogs and she says that doesn't sound like dogs well now i mean after having watched it a few times you know that there's something else in these woods you know but it's it's handled in such a simplistic way in the midst of this conversation through again very well executed dialogue the acting in this for early 70s is really pretty superb um you know it's just another piece of the convo but then you come back and you find all these little puzzle pieces that you start to realize exactly what's going on way earlier than you even know and so this truck pulls up and <laughs> listen out of this truck steps the most terrifying looking man <laughs> i have ever seen in a movie 
ever. And I'm I'm sorry. He's an albino man. He's probably like six foot four. He has the a voice that is bone chilling. It sounds like this. It doesn't like he he doesn't sound like a real fucking person. And he has a glare on him that sends shivers down my spine. This man is horrifying. Wherever they found him, if this is what he naturally looks like, he is the man of my nightmares. Yeah, it is. It is. I have the same note. One of the creepiest looking people I've ever seen. And it has nothing to do with him being an albino. It has all to do with just the way he his he ex- carries himself in like that, ex- like this stare that he gives and just his mannerisms. I mean, and yeah. plus the fact that he's like a towering, like seven foot tall guy. Uh, yeah. The albino aspect of it is very jarring uh, as yeah. well. Yeah. But um yeah, the casting for this particular, because he's Ugh. creepy. Because he he's like the guy. The, the attendant's like, um, "You want me to fill it up?" And he's like, two dollars," and just like stands there at the edge of the gas at the at the gas pump, just staring at Arletti the the entire time. The gas yeah. station, yeah, and then yeah. the gas station attendant goes to fill up his truck, and it's a pickup truck, and he notices there is a um, tarp in the back of the pickup truck, and he being curious lifts the tarp up and there are two dead bodies under the tarp. And one of them is the guy that gets his throat slit from the opening scene. Okay. So I know that's where that comes back into play. The other one, we don't know who it is. Yes. The gas station guy does not act too shocked. He just like puts the tarp back down, looks over at the guy and doesn't really react. So I'm wondering if, I mean, that to me right away is very like, I, if that was me, I'd be like screaming and like running away. I, th- this guy's, but I want, so it, I obviously it's alluding to or hinting to the fact that this gas station guy must know what's going on. Yeah. Well, and if you listen to his dialogue, there's one other thing right as the truck is pulling up. And what you just stated is something else that I think kind of plays into this is uh, he says, Point Dune, you know, why would anyone want to go there? Um, it's just a piss poor little town, deader than hell. And when I hear deader than hell, that sounds like a very intentionally placed line, A, in the writing of the script. There's several little lines in this that also, again, when I say this movie is self-aware, there's another point later in the movie where a character says, we're never getting out of here, are we? But they're saying it in a very passive way. And, you know, there's a lot more meaning to that line than that character actually knows within the dialogue, you know? Um, But so, you know, he says, just a piss poor little town, deader than hell. And I wonder if... This is something alluding to the fact that, you know, there are myths and legends and rumors about Point Dune. It is pretty apparent that people know to a certain extent that there's something going on in Point Dune. There's several characters who mention strange things going on in Point Dune. You hear it in the Father's Journal to an extensive amount because he's been living there. You meet a homeless character at one point who knows something's been going on there. The police even say things that I wonder... If what they what extent they know, mm-hmm. because later on there's even a sequence involving police officers. So I'm wondering, is this something that is extended beyond just Point Dune? Do people around Point Dune have an idea that there's something more going on? There's something dark going on. Now I don't know for sure. It's not said for sure. No, based on this gas station attendant's reaction, I would say yes, or at least he knows, because it's very it's really a non-reaction. Like it doesn't even phase him really. Although Arletti comes over and tries to give him her credit card to pay for her gas, 
And he's like, oh, the machine's broke. Don't you have cash? And she's like, no. And he's like, get the get the hell out of here, like under his breath, like really aggressively. And so she goes and he, the the tall guy, tall albino guy standing there. So he goes and gives him back. Um, he goes and gets the $2. And that's that until we get the next scene where the gas station attendant is working underneath a car in the garage of the mobile station. It's the gas station. And all of a sudden, like the lights go out and the car starts to, the car's up on one of those hydraulic jack things. He's underneath it. So all of a sudden the car starts to come down and he like rolls underneath out of the, underneath the car. And all of a sudden there's just like some random person that's in this car that literally like jumps out the door on top of him. And you just hear this and it cuts to the exterior of the mobile station. You just hear this horrific, like growling and screaming. It's pretty disturbing. Yeah. It's a very simplistic in its execution, but it's very intentional. You know, the, the car, the car goes down, he rolls out, he looks up, he sees the person cuts outside and the lighting on the the gas station goes out like and it goes to black I, which is actually a very that's a com, that's a i don't want to say a theme but that's a motif that runs through this movie is like whenever anybody's about ready to get killed and they're in a public place the lights go out which i thought was an int- really cool little little touch it's carried throughout the film anyways there is this shot of this that i didn't expect okay of the gas station attendant's body all bloody and so he's he was partly laying still on the hydraulic jack part of the the device and it starts to go up and it like literally lifts his body so his body is like hanging halfway off this hydraulic jack as it's going up and he's just hanging there and blood's dripping all over the place really really cool shot i think that should be an iconic like when Again, you look at it, shots from horror movies that should yes. be remembered that shot of him covered and it's that when we say like the red of the blood in this movie. It is that 1970s electric red, but my God, it works so good in this movie because it's so rich. It's so saturated. And the movie is so in your head. You know, it just, it, it pops. And this shot, you know, he's just so limp, his arms dangling as his body gets lifted. And that's all it is. That's all it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's it's really effective. I mean, I, I would I would I would count it among one of the, probably best like aftermath scenes if you think about like scream when you get to see casey becker hanging from a tree or like suspiria when the body falls through the glass or whatever this is this is it's really really well yeah done. you know and, and looking at this character in conclusion because obviously he dies this is the last time we see this specific character um i i wonder if almost you know we're talking about what he knows what he doesn't know how it plays into the rest of the film i almost wonder if it's kind of like um an equivalent to say like in the Hills Have Eyes remake, there's that gas station attendant who knows to a certain extent, um, yeah, 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 but, yeah, yeah, and ends up you know ends up being dispatched when he doesn't follow the rules. I almost wonder if this is a situation where he, because um, of the way it's shot, when you look at the interaction, you know, he tells Arletti to get out, and uh, then there's that awkward moment with him and and the albino gentleman where he walks away, and the, the albino man just watches him walk away, and I almost wonder if his. Um, you know, if he does know, and he's warning Arletti, and that's what did him in. Because that's something else you also see with another character coming up, is uh, 
they tell Araletti a little too much, and and that plays factor into what happens to them. So I, I again, I wonder. Yeah, I, I I feel that he must know something, and this is the purpose for why he is killed. You know, yeah, yeah. So from here, you follow Arletti's journey um, to her father's home in Point Dune, and um, you, uh, when she arrives at the house. You've got this kind of like slow, quiet sequence of her making her her way around the beach of the house because the house is right on the shore, um, and mm-hmm. and it's right on the edge of the beach. And again, this beautiful sequence with a very minimal score. This is one thing that carries through the whole movie. There are time, there are times where it's just the usage of the waves crashing, yeah. the wind. There is. Yes, there is very little score in this movie. That's something else I, I noted, which is a completely different um, than a lot of the 70s horror flicks, especially the Italian horror flicks that had these larger than life, loud um, scores that were sometimes not even fitting with the film. They were just, yeah. just be loud. And this film is very subtle with yeah. its score. And you're like you said, a lot of the score is just natural sounds, the waves, the, 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 the waves hitting the, the rocks on the ocean. Uh, the wind howling through the through the trees. It's it's very effective. It's very atmospheric. Very, but when it uses score, it is very well placed and very effective, in my opinion. And even when it's down to something like a stinger, like there's this moment in this in the sequence of her walking around the house where she's startled by the um, the sail on a, a, a sailboat that's on the sand and she turns a corner and the sail billows in her face and it cuts in tighter on her and you hear this stinger and it's so well placed because honestly I cannot remember the last time Troy that I watched a movie from this era and I jumped and I actually re- you know other than just you know being enamored with the beauty this movie has several moments where I actually jumped with fear and and it, it it takes a lot to get that kind of response out of me so this movie is not only visually stunning it's also successful at at several times over the course of this film scaring you know actually scaring the audience uh, for a movie that you know this old that's surprising to me it is yeah yeah so she's at her she actually has to her dad's nowhere around obviously so she she actually has to like break in she busts the the window pane on the door to get in obviously nobody's there this this the interior of this house is so strange um and it's not it's not just the layout which is really strange and, and confusing but it's also the decor i mean the walls are painted with like murals of of various people and then like there's this one wall where this there's this it looks like escalators are just painted on the wall and if like a watching the film the first time i actually thought they were real like escalators i'm like oh my god this house has escalators and but it's actually it's it's painted on the wall so you it's really hard to discern in this house like what is real and what's a what's painted on the wall it's really but that also not oh, only sorry, Oh no! I was gonna say not only to mention I want one of those hanging oh, beds. Oh my god! There's like in the middle of this room, there's like this slab bed that, that's hanging from four chairs that just like swings. Oh, I want that. This, I, I mean, I think this is the coolest fucking house I've ever seen. I mean, <laughs> next to the house in like the haunting, <laughs> like the, when they when they like first get in, they're like oh, it's so beautiful. No, but this house is so um. Well, it's an, I mean, it's an artist loft, is what it is. Her father's an artist, and so um. What, you know, what, 
while it, while strange as it may be, again, here's a moment where this movie is completely aware of what it's doing. Her father's an artist, and he's obviously, as you're hearing these journal entries, because you hear them all throughout the movie, you're learning that his mental state is declining. And as you see, you know, these murals all around this home, all around the interior of the walls of this house, what he basically did is he point he painted what I'm taking to be elements, aspects of Point Dune. There's an area of a, like a boardwalk where when she stands in front of it, when it's lit a certain way, it just looks like she's on an amazing set, yeah, you know? Yes, that's and, what and I'm saying. Yeah, it's really Yeah, like, so what these murals do do is manages to create some beautiful imagery where it gives you these, it plays basically plays tricks on your mind. The way it films it in certain angles, it looks like the characters are actually in different locations than just being in this house. But it also gives you these silhouettes of these figures, which very much comes into play with what the father's seeing. You can tell he's painting what he's experiencing on the walls of this house. As the movie progresses, you start to see that in these images because they play factor into the movie. But God, it creates some amazing visuals as she's walking through this home. Yeah. And this is that she finds she finds the journal. And this journal, we get a lot of voiceover narration from this journal throughout the film. So, and it's, we're not going to get into, I don't think we're going to get into everything it says, but it, it does basically, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, document his decline uh, of mental state. So like the first entry she reads is very like, oh, well, you know, I feel like this town is kind of weird. There's some, weird, but as it goes on, the, the journal entries get a lot more um, sinister. Yeah. Um, but the next day, you know, cause I mean this, the scene, she, she, she checks out the house. The next day she goes for a walk on the beach and she, she sees some, a pile of wood that is just like burning on the beach, which you may think is just like a, maybe like a, a time filler or a weird transition, but it actually does play into the film. There, there is a lot of mention of fire and wood burning and, and things like that throughout, especially like the later journal entries. Yeah. So yeah, and there's lots of scenes like this. To be honest, like one thing again for the viewers who have not seen this movie or maybe are going to be revisiting it. One thing you need to keep in mind is a lot of this. I think on first view viewing, you think is just like weird psychedelic trippy imagery. Everything ties into something, in my opinion. Uh, from from what I take away, every scene is a small puzzle piece creating a bigger picture, and that's what telling a great story is that's what creating a great film is and this does this ex expertly crafted expertly crafted so she's uh she um goes to this basically this um artist this local artist in one of the towns nearby who sells art from people with around the area and it cuts to the sequence of this old woman basically <laughs> groping her face i'm assuming this woman is a blind woman and she's groping her face and she like steps back and she like you know with her fingers like tells uh, her gentleman assistant exactly like who it is and what it is that she needs to know it's a very strange transition and i wish this woman was in the movie more <laughs> yeah it was it, it's it, it is strange and yes the old woman is blind she mentions the old woman is blind yeah. that the owner of this art gallery yeah. is blind yeah. and she's just like yeah she does all this weird stuff with her hands that's not even like silence. It's, it's just like weird. And yeah, her, the, the guy, her assistant tells Arnetti that there were actually people in the art gallery earlier that day who were actually looking for her father. And Arnetti is actually taken by surprise. She's like, Oh really? Who are they? And she, he's like, well, I don't know, but they're staying at the seven seas motel. The 
Next scene cuts to the Seven Seas Hotel, which is another just weird scene. Like, oh my god! But honestly, in the terms of like creepy fucking performances, this homeless man gets the prize, in my opinion. She walks into the room of this hotel, and there is. She basically walks in in the middle of a story being told by, like, a, a, the town drunk, or uh, what I'm assuming is the town homeless man. And he's in the middle of telling this this very eccentric, wild story to a group of three people who are all laying on, or two people are laying on a bed. You, you find there's a third person. Um, and they're recording the story. They're recording what he's saying. They're te- he's telling them about his birth and how when he was born... His mother was going to feed him the chickens. And his father was like, oh, well, maybe we do need a little boy around. And so they decided to keep him. That's a depressing start to one's life. (laughs) Chicken food? I didn't even know chickens ate meat. But that sounds like an unreasonable way to get rid of one's child. (laughs) But there's the couple laying on the bed, which happens to be um, Laura and Tom. Yeah. Tom. And <laughs> it's Tom, but it's spelled T H O M. Tom. Yeah. So it's like a gay lisp, Tom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he's also going on about, well, another, all of a sudden, another girl like comes out of the bathroom. And you find out that it's basically what we would call now, nowadays, it's a thruple. Tom. Laura and Tony, they're yeah. a thruple. Yeah, and and Tom is, uh, just to give like a little story, because you're going to find out later, but he's he's basically a very rich Portuguese aristocrat who collects um, artistic lure uh, or, or pieces of art tied to like um, uh, stories and tales. And, 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 and he's here in this town trying to collect this uh, artwork tied to Point Dune because he's heard about the myths and the legends of Point Dune. And that's what's brought him here, along with his groupies, his two basically girlfriends. Yeah. Yeah. So the homeless man proceeds to tell a story about uh, basically the town and the arrival of the blood moon. And when this blood moon came years ago, people like literally like came out of the canyon and children started eating raw meat and just like the whole town went kind of nuts. Um, and then all of a sudden he has, he's, he has to leave. Yeah. He's like, well, I gotta go. <laughs> so you just told these weird stories and the story of you becoming chicken food almost because he's like, Oh, I got to I got a jet let people buy. Yeah. And as he gets ready to go, he, you can tell he's, in my opinion, it reads that he's realizing he's telling too much. You know, I do get a, a vibe from a lot of the characters on the outskirts of this town that people around Point Dune know what's going on in Point Dune. And as long as there's a certain level of, I guess, cooperation, um, they're spared. Because you start to see a lot of the people that do die early on, you know, the first few deaths are people who are caught telling too much, warning people, uh, you know, alluding to what's going on. So, yeah, this, this homeless gentleman scurries away with his wine bottle in hand and um and arletti basically is given the chance to inquire about her father and what this group of individuals may know about her father yeah and they don't really know anything all they know is that or all tom all tom did basically to even start this whole conversation about her father was he says he saw a painting 
in the window of this art gallery. And he went in and found out that her father was the artist that painted it. And Arletti is a little bit taken aback because she's like, well, my there was no paintings of my father at the gallery. And he's like, well, it was there earlier. So basically, she leaves the hotel. And when she's leaving, she runs back into the homeless man. And this is when he tells her basically that, I mean, it's a lot of foreshadowing, but he tells her about her father and that she's going to have to kill her father and that she can't just bury him when she does. She's going to have to burn him. Yeah. And again, the the homeless man's performance is honestly, again, for this era, like it's, it's pretty chilling. And, and the way he, he says it, he's like, you're going to have to, you're, you're not going to be able to put him in the ground. You're going to have to burn him. Like he just, and then he scurries away again. He's obviously, he's like, I, he's basically like, I've said too much. He runs away and she is convinced the guy's crazy, understandably so. Um, but these are all important things. Like if you, you know, as a first time viewer or even someone coming back and revisiting it, you've got to listen to the dialogue. You've got to listen to everything because it all falls together and it all starts to, I don't say make sense, but this is a movie that you think it's, it's convoluted. It really, it's not, it's not. So it is, it is. And it's, it's a very actually straightforward, simple plot that is perhaps made a little bit more convoluted via the voiceover journal entries dialogue, but it's really no more, you know what? It really is no more convoluted. If you think about it, than like the evil dead, which did a lot of the same thing you got. If you remember the original evil dead, it's very similar in terms of the fact that you're getting a lot of narration from the journal that the kids find in the cellar that belonged to the guy that was at the cabin. Right. And even a piece of the dialogue here that the man's saying, he's he says it's the when his father told him the stories of the blood moon, he said it was the night his father lost his religion and learned men that men can do horrible things like animals. You know, and earlier you're saying there's wild dogs in the woods, that bodies, that people are being found killed. They look like they've been eaten by wild dogs. These are all these little lines that if you hear them, it starts to fall together and make sense. Um, and so uh, she goes, uh, She after that night, she goes back to her house and she falls asleep in this horrifying room with this beautiful suspended bed, which must be very hard to make love in because it'd be like a being on a roller coaster. Well, no, but it looks like it's a slab of cement with a sheet on it. It does not look comfortable. It's, it's not a mattress. No. It's like a slab of cement, but I'd still, I still need it in my living room. I agree. I would just like lay there in front of the TV yes, and watch what's Messiah of Evil. Oh, absolutely. But no, it's really cool. It's just, But yeah, it's like, it doesn't look comfortable, but it looks really cool. Well, it's surrounded by those murals of horrifying faces just glaring out of the shadows it's terrifying she wakes up she wakes up she hears a noise and so there's this like creepy scene where you hear this like weird humming noise and she's like walking through this dark house with all of these weird murals on the wall and she gets to this room that the noise is coming from and all of a sudden Laura. Laura just steps out of the room with a fucking blow dryer like it's no big deal. She is blow drying her hair. And apparently the Thruple have decided that they're just going to stay at this house without even asking, without even... They've just moved all their stuff. Well, I mean, she did bust in the the glass in the door earlier and let herself in. So I feel like it's a kind of no rules policy at this point. But yeah, they they basically are like, we're going to stay here the night. And (laughs) she's like... um. 
you are? And they're like, yeah, we got kicked out of the hotel, and everyone else in town seems to have shuttered their doors. Also foreboding. And Charlie was found dead. The homeless man. Also foreboding. He was, <laughs> yes, he was half eaten. Hmm, sound familiar? No. <laughs> All of this is starting to make sense. So, yeah. But they, but they say, oh well, he must have he must have got drunk and fell and hit his head, and then a pack of you know dogs must have came and, and eat, eat, started you know feeding off of his body. That's their that's the kind of the excuse they get for the fact that he was half eating, uh, or half eat half eaten, not half eating. Uh, so then there's like like she decides to let him stay, which is kind of odd. And then there's all of a sudden, like right away, there's like the weird tension between the three girls. It's like. The two are not really feeling ha- having this other broad right. around. Well, and also the the competition. Oh, I guess yeah. I guess com- competition to a certain extent. It just seems like there's a uh, tension between a lot of the characters. Like for example, like at one point Tom says about Tony, he's like, "Tony, you're half girl, half child, and half wit." Because Tony's like the young one; she's the dumb one. But he talks down to her a lot. Um, and he obviously is like because he has money because he alludes to the fact that he's from a very rich family i feel these girls are kind of like in this groupy situation with him but they don't necessarily all get along and arletti doesn't initially respond very well to him either even um laura makes a comment she's like tom likes to collect things and arletti responds by saying like old drunks because you know they had paid the old man in booze to tell them everything about the blood moon that he knows. So, um, you know, Arletti is pretty resistant to them at first, but she even says, she's like, for some reason, I let them stay with me. I don't even know why. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and then they're eating dinner together. And even Laura is kind of being a bitch because she's sort of making like snide jabs at the at her father's paintings because they're looking, you know, they're looking around at the paintings on the wall and, you know, uh, Tom is like, oh, well, your dad did all these paintings. And Laura, like, very, like, snarkly says, oh, has he been painting long? Yeah. <laughs> it's just little. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of bitchy little comments made back and forth. Yeah. And then there's, like, Tony saying whatever she's eating was shitty tasting. She just out of the blue. She's like, this is shitty tasting. And Laura's like, you're not supposed to eat the fuzz. <laughs> I don't know what she was eating that would have fuzz on it. But it like, a, it was, oh, God, what is it? It's a kind of vegetable uh, like an artichoke or something. I don't fucking know, but it looked disgusting. So I understand Tony's angle on it. But, um, and I do have to say one thing here. Um, you know, I'm, I'm gayer than Eileen Quinn's performance as Annie in the movie Annie. But I've gotta say for the record book that, um, the character of Laura is played by Anitra Ford. And she is, I swear to God, probably the single most physically beautiful woman I have seen in a movie ever in my life. She is stunning. I I can't, I mean, like, I cannot even put into words how some of these sequences, especially one pivotal sequence with her coming up, where her beauty is just contrasted very well against the horror that's going on around her. But um, every time she's on camera, like, the camera loves her. And her performance is honestly, I might say, even the strongest acting performance in the movie she's very understated very natural um but god she's fucking beautiful she's so beautiful and so she's the character who starts to express her her dis her distaste with tom in general uh the most the loudest she's proclaiming that she's pretty unhappy with tom 
Well, yeah, because what happens is Tom is basically he, well, he goes, he go after dinner, he goes out to the beach and he sees a bunch of people on the beach just standing around fires. Well, there we go. It kind of ties back to Arnetti um, finding the fire going that, that morning before. He goes back to the house and he starts to kind of flirt subtly with Arnetti and he gives her a hug. Like he just grabs her and gives her a hug. Well, Laura sees this and she is not happy. So she basically goes and packs her bag and is like, Tony's in the, in the bathtub taking a bath. And she's like, what, where are you going? And she's like, oh, I'm leaving. And Tony, Tony's like, oh, where, for how long? And she's like, well, forever. She's like, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of Tom. All he does is lead me on. All he does is lie. And I'm going to go to San Francisco. So I'm out of here. Yeah, yeah. The sequence between Tom and Arletty, like, he is way too confident for his own good. Um, uh, She's, I wouldn't say she's ever completely 100% smitten with Tom. Uh, Arletty is very uncomfortable with Tom at first. And he, like, forces her to unzip his vest. And then he, like, uses it as, like, a come on to her. And she's like, I don't know about this. And then he's like, he embraces her nonetheless. And her face is so, like, uncomfortable. I don't know if he's really succeeding at, like, sweeping her off her feet. Um, but uh, Laura is still nonetheless displeased with this. And it leads to this really, that this dialogue sequence between Laura and Tony. That some of the dialogue sequences in this even are shot so well uh the, they're so striking that like it could take a very simple moment and make it very memorable and there's this little conversation between laura and uh tony where she you know she tells tony she's going to be leaving and it's filmed in, in this bathroom against this another mural um that has a series of faces at an angle so it looks like the you know the the, the face furthest to the left is is the the largest and as uh, as that goes Along the wall, it goes into the background. The people become smaller and smaller. And where Laura sits, her, seats herself uh, opposite of Tony, who's in the tub on the opposite side of the frame, she seats herself next to the largest mural. And so where she's sitting, it looks like she's perfectly placed in this row of people seated going off into the distance. you got to see the, the shot to understand. It's so beautiful and it's framed so well i just can't take my t- my eyes off of the sequence at the end of the scene as she's saying she's going to leave and she's she's kind of mourning the you know, the her, her time wasted on tom she looks in the mirror and she says in this perfectly delivered line he's given me too many lines as in like wrinkles and she leaves and it's such a good uh piece of dialogue to end the scene on it's just such a good scene well and then what follows is um, pretty great in its own right, but a completely different way. So she's out on the road walking through town, which is the town is eerily quiet. And all of a sudden what pulls up next to her, but the red truck that we saw at the gas station early in the earlier scene. And of course it's the albino and he pulls up and he's like, Hey, do you want to ride? And she looks and there's like, Oh, in the back of the pickup truck, there's like eight guys that are sitting in the back of the pickup truck and they're just all staring up at the moon. So she looks up and it's just a full moon. There's nothing, but they're all like fixated on the moon. So she's like, uh, okay, I'll get in. And she gets in. Yeah. Yeah. This whole sequence of the, even the truck pulling up again, it used to sound effects. 
She's walking through an area of the town in which all of the houses around her are just the wooden frames of houses in the midst of construction, and the, the road is dirt, and it's so bleak, and it's this really wide shot, and she's very small in the middle of it. And in the distance, you hear the howling of, of wolves or dogs. And, you know, they've mentioned several times now people having been killed and eaten by dogs. You've heard this in the dialogue. And so this truck pulls up. And she, like, literally looks at the driver. She looks at the back. She looks up at the moon. She looks back at the driver. And you literally see the moment where she's like, fuck it. And it's so well well executed because it literally is almost, like, nodding to itself. Like, yes, it's absurd she's getting in this truck. But, like, what else the fuck is she going to do? And she, she, like, shrugs it off. She's like, why the hell not? And she gets in. It's very self-aware. It's almost, like, kind of winking at itself. I love it. There's a couple moments that that do that same thing. Uh so she gets in and it's just immediately like an awkward, awkward conversation. Um, immediately. I, I, <laughs> he's like, there's whatever's playing on the radio. He's like, do you like, I don't even remember the, the art, who the musician, but he's like, do you like blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh yeah, yeah, they're great. Um, and then he's like, that's a classical. Yeah. yeah I don't know what it was. I can't remember. And then he's like, I was out on the beach all night and I found some little friends and she's like, Oh, okay. That's, that's nice. And he's, and she's like, Oh, what, what little, what friends did you find? He's like beach rats. <laughs> and he pulls out a rat by its tail and he's dangling it. <laughs> and she's like, Oh, and you could just see her face. She's like, what the fuck? She's like, Oh, <laughs> What do you do with those? He's like, oh, what do I do with these? I eat them. And he literally takes the rat and bites its head off. Oh, my God. And it's disgusting. And he does looks at her with this big old smile on his face and blood running down his chin. And he's like, I have another one if you want one. <laughs> and she's like, no, I'm good. I will get out right here. Pull over. I'm good. And he actually, he does pull over and let her out. And she... And she gets out and she's like, she's like, Jesus Christ. And the guys are in the back are like still staring straight up at the moon. It's yeah. so yeah. weird. So weird. It's so, it's so weird. And, and a few things he says in the dialogue there, again, moments, if you're really listening, it's, it, it kind of starts to connect all these, all the tissue connects. Um, he asks her first thing, he's like, you coming back from the waiting on the beach? The waiting is a term that you start to realize uh, the, 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 this whole kind of curse, this kind of, I guess, a cult-like curse, uh, once you start to fall under it, it's, it's called the waiting. And all of these bonfires being burned on the beach, once you start to see more footage of them, you see that the people are all looking up at the moon, the blood moon. It's all, it all kind of ties together. And, and these men in the back of his truck, looking up at the moon as though they're under a trance. And then he is somebody who you start to see in some of these later sequences as well. He kind of fits all of these different descriptions of what the people under this trance look like, how they operate. And so when he's, when she's asking about this and he says, everybody was there, even the little critters, and they're my favorite. And that's when he takes up the rat and eats the rat. Well, you start to find out people under this curse eating raw meat or eating living flesh and I, I, from what I take away from this character, because he's not really ever explained, no. but I feel that this character, he's, he's under this curse and he's kind of going outside of the boundaries of the town and bringing back meat, bringing back flesh for the people under the curse to consume. 
This is what I'm gathering, is what I'm understanding. And I'm, tell me if maybe you're following the same thing. Even the sequence in the opening of the movie, you see the guy get his throat slit by a girl. I'm assuming this girl is also under the curse. Then you see his body in the back of the truck. It's the same truck that's now heading back to the town again. Later in the movie, you see the albino gentleman as part of the crowd. Clearly, he's under this curse. So I've, this is, I'm starting to gather that this is his involvement within this cult, within the townspeople. Uh, again, it's never really clearly explained, but that's what I'm gathering from it. And so when he starts to realize that she's not in the town, she's not a townsperson, she's not actually under this trance, she gets out of the vehicle and she runs away from the vehicle and she goes into the town and she's trying to look for a hotel and she starts to realize that it's empty, that everything is pretty much dead. Yeah, the, the town is eerily, eerily empty. There is like nothing nothing around nothing open there's no cars on the street there's no people in the street with the exception of one guy as she's walking away from the hotel she sees a guy walking in front of her and she calls out to him several times hey and he looks back at her one time and then turns around and keeps walking totally ignores her and she keeps following him hey hey and he ha he happens to just lead her into this parking lot of a giant supermarket, Ralph's supermarket to be precise. And uh, <laughs> parking lot is completely empty, but the supermarket is lit up like a Christmas tree. It's obviously just, it must be open because the guy walks in and she walks in and the supermarket music's playing and everything. And she's kind of casually strolling through the aisles. And like every time she reaches like the, an aisle, she looks down and there just happens to be like a different person like each time she looks down the aisle at the other end of the aisle and there's like this one time where the, like she goes to the aisle and looks down and there's just this guy just standing there staring straight at her. Like that's fucking terrifying. And if you look at him like his like all of these people because you see little snippets of them moving, you know, past the aisles. But when you finally get a good, a good shot on one of the um, individuals, like their faces are like milk white but their eyes, because it's always from a distance, their eyes are just black. There's like black pits around their eyes. It's so effective. It's so simple. Um, very, very similar to kind of the effect of the Romero zombies from the first Night of the Living Dead in the distance with the dark pits around the eyes. But yeah, they're, they just, they look very off. Yeah. And, and they're all moving in the same direction. So she starts moving in that same direction as well. At the same time, everything audio-wise silent except for the sound of her heels on the tile this is important yeah because as she turns the corner <laughs> and arrives at the meat section of the supermarket there are a horde of people hovering over the meat cooler and literally devouring all of the raw meat like shoving it in their mouths Ripping the packages over. There's a guy chewing on a steak, a late, an old lady eating like a chicken thigh, and it's all raw. And they're just going to town. And she like steps back disgusted. And one guy just happens to turn over and look at her. And yeah, their faces are pale, very pale. Um, and it's so just unsettling. I don't even know how to describe it. It's just, you're not expecting it. Not at all. And it's like, if you look at a few of them, even you can see that there's red lining the bottom of their eyelids. And, and again, even this plays into factor, but um, they all look up at her and she obviously is repulsed and she just turns and starts to run. And as she's running, she notices that 
they're starting to follow her. And again, there's no score except for the sound of the heels on the tile. And you see shots of all of them starting to move after her and they're running. They're not just walking. They're, they are, these individuals chase. Yeah, they do take chase. And as you hear the, the footfalls, you hear more of them, the clicking, more, more, layering over. Like the sound is growing and it's so effective. It's so terrifying. And she loses her purse and she gets to the door and the door is locked and she has to climb over the metal bar of the, uh, um, leading up to the door of like the rotation bar. Um, she's trapped and she's basically starting to panic. So she takes off running through the market and she turns and looks one direction and she sees another individual holding a piece of meat and they just like look at her and drop it and start to come at her. It's terrifying. This sequence is cinematic gold and it really is just like such well executed suspense through fast cuts and great audio and this weird like jazz music starts to come in it's weird but it works and all of a sudden she see she turns and she sees this uh individual coming at her and she starts to back up and one of them just appears from behind her and grabs her and takes her down and they all just climb on top of her it's horrifying it is horrifying and you hear her screaming and we're assuming she's they're eating her alive uh it's such a terrifying like you said terrifying scene so well done i'm surprised like i said i'm so surprised it's not more well known or well um regarded as one of the more terrifying scenes in cinema history there's two scenes in this film that really could be that and this one is one and then we're coming up on the other one as well yeah and, and again just to say anitra ford her performance in the sequence beyond just being beautiful, like the fear in her face is really uh, when, uh, when I think of a lot of early 1970s and prior cinema, I think of, of, of acting that doesn't always register as believable. And my God, like this whole sequence really just sent chills down my back. So um, really well executed. And you're right. There is another scene coming up. That's just as good, if not in some ways better, but um, we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, so now we get back to the house and there's more of the journal reading voiceover and we we get the first kind of mention of this dark stranger who arrived in in this town 100 years ago and after his arrival strange things start to happen. So that's what we're told. That's all we get at this point. And then we cut to Tom and Tony are in bed trying to listen to a radio, but for some reason, this town has no radio stations at all. And she's getting frustrated. The only radio station she could get is one from Idaho. And she's like, Idaho. Uh, and then she, this is the first time that she mentions she wants to go home. She wants to leave and that she's yeah. scared. Um, and this is, I think the moment that she mentions that we're not leaving here. Are we? It's the moment when she's playing with the cards and she's singing oh, yeah, there's another to her, herself. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But then we go to our Nettie sleeping uh, and this figure approaches and turns on the light. And we don't really know who the figure is, but she gets up and she is kind of startled that the light is on and she's walking around the room and she this painting falls, startles her. But then she notices the painting behind it has like it's a face it's a it's a painting of a face and the eye is like bleeding and she touches the the painting and it's the eye and it's actually liquid blood yeah that whole sequence everything within okay well first like the journal entries because now tom is also listening to 
um, or reading, uh, you know, we hear the, the, um, the journal entries as voiceovers, but he's reading the journal as well. So uh, at this point, you're starting to understand that the father is falling under the spell of Point Dune. And basically, like, you're slowly taken over by the spell and you start to hallucinate and see visions and go mad with, like, like visions of death. And so as you hear the progressive state of the father, you're also starting to see Our Lady experience these things. So this whole sequence is placed at a point where within the father's, you know, description of what he's experiencing, it's kind of aligning with where she's at within her being taken over by Point Dune. And so this whole sequence with the painting, it's really striking because she's moving through the shadows. Um, and, and after a startle, she turns around and she sees this painting like folded down, but the, the image very much resembles her face. Like if you look at it, it looks like her. And there's that hole punctured in the eye. And as she gets close to it, it leaks this that red blood. And the, the blood used in this movie is very pink-like. But there's something about the blood in the shot that does not... It reads like blood. And it, you see it and you know it's real. And that's all you really get from it, you know? But it's... it's you could tell that she's starting to lose her grasp of reality. Yeah, because then she goes into where Tom is sleeping with Tony and he is, he wakes up and sees her and he asks her what's, he asks her what's wrong. And she's like, I, I just, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's strange things are, are happening. So he tells her to get in bed with them and they kind of have this conversation. He's like, well, maybe we should just leave. And this is when Tony, she's like, yeah, I'd leave. Maybe I can get some sleep. <laughs> and, um, she leaves. Tony actually leaves and goes lays on the uh, the swingy bed uh, and tries to go to sleep, but she can't because of all of the. Um, she gets freaked out by all the paintings on the wall, so it's kind of a funny scene where she everywhere every direction she turns to 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 sleep in, there's a different silhouette staring at her. Um, yeah, and right after she rolls over, because she finally covers her head with the pillow, right after she rolls over, you get this really expertly placed quick flash cut of uh, what it, what is the glass ceiling of this house and a, a, a silhouette of a figure very obviously staring through the glass, like up against the glass. It's just shadowed. You don't know who it is, but they're up against the glass. It's a very Suspiria cut, in my opinion, pre-Suspiria, but it's a fast cut with a really good stinger. And it's another moment that made me jump like holy fuck! Like <laughs> it's really well. Yeah, it's like a. It's like the person is like they're not even like they're not just standing at the glass. They're like straddling it like a spider almost. Like their hands are like pressed and it's it's yeah it's a real quick, but it's yeah it's it's startling. The next day, our our lady gets a phone call and we find out that they basically tell her that they found her father's body on the beach, and that he must have died in a freak accident because he was building the sculpture on the beach and somehow it must have fell on him. So they take her to the beach and this is a really weird scene because they let her go up to the wreckage and let her touch his, like his hand is the only thing you can see sticking out from under this wreckage and she gets to touch his hand and that's all they really let her do. And I'm thinking to myself, like most like p- police officers or, you know, morticians or county coroners, if they're going to call you to a crime scene to show you their your loved one or to help you identify their loved one, they're actually going to sh- 
have the body already pulled out of whatever it was from and like laying on a stretcher for you to come and be like, okay. But they just let her touch his hand and they're like, oh yeah, that's your father. Uh, he, he must've died in an accident. We're all good. Um, and yeah. so that's, that's that for now, even though she no, she tells Tom later, she knows that it wasn't her, her father, uh, but she could tell by his hand that, that it wasn't him. Yeah. Her father was an artist and they even, uh, they, well, they, they may, they mention, one of the first things she says is the the police um, say that it must have been a, a meth problem that he had been found wandering in the town, unsure of where he was several times before this. The police make it sound like the father was well apparently addicted to meth, but like kind of losing his his mind, and um, and they use this whole story and you know the whole discovery of the body to basically tell Tom you should really get her out of here. Like, you should take her home, back to her home. You should leave Point Dune uh, because, you know, this. we don't really want this kind of situation uh, to blow up. We don't have situations like this a lot. And you should just take her home. But then when they go back to the house, she says she's she knows her father's hands because he was an artist. He had very beautiful, fine hands. And the hands in this body were coarse and rough. And even though she didn't see the face, she's absolutely positive it's not her father. And they never let her see anything else. This is, uh, and then we get Tony singing and Tony singing in bed, playing with the cards. And, um, she asks Tom how Arnetti's doing and he doesn't really answer her. And he looks at her and he like suggests that she goes to a movie and she gets all excited. Cause she's like, Oh yay, Okay. I can take the car then. And you guys can have some alone time. We get another voiceover as Arnetti wakes up from a nap of the father talking about how his body temperature has now dropped to 85 degrees. Um, so not only is all those are weird things happening now, his, he's saying his body temperature is not 85 degrees. She looks up and has like she looks in the mirror and she has blood like coming down her neck. Yeah, coming from her ear. Yeah. Yeah. Straightening, straight, coming down from her ear down, down to her neck. Um, and she, what, something startles her and she kind of backs into the oven. Isn't she, she's making, she's making, she's trying to make, um, tea or something. And she backs in the oven and knocks the, the tea kettle off the oven. And then to balance herself, puts her hand right on the burner that's going full blast. And Tom comes and grabs her and pulls her hand off. And she's like, I didn't even feel that. Like, Tom, why didn't I even feel any pain? Like, I didn't even feel the fire. It's all falling very in line with the information being fed to us from the journal. The journal, I mean, honestly, the usage of the father's journal, when you go back and you revisit this, is an expertly placed device. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. as it's giving you information, you're seeing these things happen uh, to our Letty and everything going on around them. Um, and, and one thing to, to point is that scene with Tony was the point where she said, we're never leaving this place, are we? In the sense she's saying, oh, God, we're going to be stuck here waiting forever. With now it's happening with our levy and so forth. But really, when you look at it from a you know, a less literal, more uh, figurative point of view in the sense of the execution of the film and the story that's being told, without her even knowing it, she's saying they're never going to leave this place because of the curse. It's a well-placed line. Um but so, uh, meanwhile, you know, Tony is attending this movie. She goes to see a film at this movie theater and she walks in and there's only about three or four people in the theater. It's a beautiful, big red theater. It's a beautiful theater. It's all lit up from the outside when she goes in 
And the minute she goes in, she goes to the concession stand. There's nobody working. So she just helps herself to a bag of popcorn. And the second that she enters the theater, the actual movie theater, you get a shot from the outside of the theater. The lights just shut off. Like all the theater lights shut off on the outside. And she's sitting in this theater eating this bag of popcorn, which is a normal, just a small little bag of popcorn, right? It's not like a huge bucket. It's a small, like a bag you would get like a, um, you know, a circus or something, just a small bag that, because that, it's, there's a purpose for me saying that, <laughs> but, uh, as she's sitting there, she's just kind of looking around and you're right. There's only about three people. There's like an older guy sitting in the very front of the theater. She looks over to her left and there's an old lady that's at the other at the other stream of seats knitting. And then there's somebody behind her. That's it. And the, the movie starts and, um, we sort of get a movie within a movie. It's like some Western movie, something like the West, the West and us or something. <laughs> and it's really funny because, because when she sees it, it's a Western, she like rolls her eyes and the most, like she's really pissed off that this is a Western yeah. movie. Um, but she's enjoying herself. I mean, it's very action packed. There's like two, two like old, you know, little house in the prairie type women beating the shit out of each other. And they're, yeah, it's just, I need to get my hands wacky. on that movie. Because it's a real I know, movie, right? God, it looks like a fucking good time. They're like throwing each other through windows yeah. and their big old dresses. And there's one thing to acknowledge, dresses. right, as that movie started, Troy, is one shot that I just really found very striking is right before the lights drop, there's a spotlight on the um, on the screen and she, you know, she's looking around and she looks straight towards the screen and there's a man in the front row. And he's seated with his arm on the seat, looking over his shoulder, looking directly at her. Yeah, I saw that. And it's so unsettling because he's all the way down at the front of the, the, the theater, but she can tell he's looking right at her. And then the lights go down and the movie begins. And it starts on such a <clears throat> such an unsettling note. Like, you, you as the viewer know shit's about to go down. And it does. <laughs> and it does. This scene does. is... Oh, man. If I could honestly say top 10 favorite sequences in a horror movie what unfolds here it would honestly go on my list i, I i'm serious about that i agree i agree 100 this has become uh for me this is a very iconic or it should be a very iconic scene it's so unsettling it's so subtle it's done extremely well and it i mean it plays on kind of at least a fear i have is like you know not only just a theater, but you think about like just being in a place that you're not familiar with. And when your senses are engaged by, you know, a, a movie, a moving picture and the sound of the movie is loud, you know, theaters are very loud. You're all your attention is focused on that. You're not focused on what's going on behind you, you know, to the side of you, you're focused on the movie. It, it's a very, um, it's like sort of like, I don't want to compare it to like the shower shower scene in Psycho, but very similar like setting because in a shower you're very uninhibited, you're really not paying attention to much of what's going on outside of the your little area that you're in, and that's what makes it terrifying when someone rips the shower curtain open and starts stabbing the hell out of you. This is done even more subtly because what happens is she's watching the movie, the camera is just focused on her, and all of a sudden the door opens behind her and one person comes straggling in and sits, you know, at the, in the row directly behind her. She's watching the movie, having a gale time. She's having it. She's enjoying herself. She's eating the popcorn. Like, just, like this is the smallest bag of popcorn that lasts. Like it's unlimited popcorn. 
because she is eating it throughout the whole scene. She's pouring it in her mouth, and it's it, <laughs> and it's gorgeous. It's a normal size it. bag of popcorn, and even the and I'll get to it, but it's it's I just caught thought it was funny. Anyway, so throughout about a two maybe a minute and a half period of time, you're watching her watch the movie as all of these people come into the theater behind her and sit behind her. And she's oblivious because she doesn't hear it. She's not paying attention. You get to the point where you get a shot and all of a sudden, like the three rows behind her are full of people. And they they're, are just sitting there. The thing that makes it, they're just watching this they're movie. They're just sitting there watching the movie. <laughs> and all of a sudden, kind of what makes her notice is one guy comes in and he like comes in and sits like literally the seat next to her. And she kind of looks at him and gives him like a weird look. Like, I think I would like, Hey, the theater's empty. Why are you sitting next to me? So when she turns over, all of a sudden this big woman, big woman comes down her aisle and like literally sits next to her. And this is what triggers her to think, okay, something's not right. Right. And she, she like looks up behind her and they're the moment where she responds. Like you see it on her face. Like, Oh my fucking god! There are all these people behind me. It's it is a chilling moment. And she tries to get up, and obviously she's not going to get. There's two people on each side now, so she has no choice but to climb over the front, um, the front, the row in front of her. And you get a shot. Very, it's a shot of like when she crawls over her hand, grabbing the seat and the popcorn, piling out of the bag. It's. It's a full bag of popcorn, even though she endless, just was spending the last supply. 20 minutes eating and pouring it down her throat. Anyways, she she runs around. She tries to get out of the theater. The doors are locked. Um, so she runs to the front of the theater of the where the screen is and just like she realizes like this is not good because as she gets to the front, turns around. All of a sudden, all of the people start climbing over the seats. They don't even go off the aisles. They're like jump over the seats coming at her. And it is terrifying. Oh my god! It is. It's as uh, chilling. It's honestly. It's like the only word I can think of the way this plays out because it takes its time. It's not rushed by any means. You know, even even when she gets up and climbs over the seat, the 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 individuals behind her they don't break their view on the screen. It's not like they instantly take chase. It's so weird because they're kind of just in this fixated trance. And so she goes to the one door on the left-hand side. It's bolted, and she starts panicking. She goes to the right-hand side. She's pulling on the door. She's panicking. She starts crying and screaming. And they're still looking at the screen. Like, they're not... It, it, it Honestly, it takes until she runs to the curtain to by the exit and pulls it. to, And it reveals, like, the usher, who is also one of them. And she screams, and she turns around, but they all stand up. And they're looking at her, and then they just start coming at her. And so she runs to the center of the the stage platform in front of the movie screen, and she just stands there panicking. And I think it's so terrifying because it's honestly, you could tell she's just in a place where she has no idea what to do. She has nowhere to go. And all of them just run at her, and they pull her down. And you just see her hand get dragged down, covered in blood, as she's screaming. It's amazing. It is horrifying. 
It's chilling. If you don't get chills watching this scene and thinking about maybe the times that you've, because I know I've been in movie theaters before where I'm like one of the only people in there. Like there's been two movies I've gone to in my entire life where I was the only person in the theater. And I thought it was a gay old time until I saw this fucking scene. And I'm like, okay, the next time I go into a theater. Yeah. But, um, and the movies were the psycho remake, which makes sense why nobody else was there. Oh yeah. And, um, (laughs) Hellfest. Hellfest, which is un- underrated. Absolutely. More people should have saw Hellfest. We're reviewing it. Hellfest. It's coming yeah. up soon. Hellfest is awesome. <laughs> anyway, so it's a terrifying scene. I, that's all I can say. I, I can't say anything more about it. It is one of, if now if I had to make a list of my top 10 favorite s- sequences in a horror film that I thought were creepy, effective, just bone chilling, this would be yeah, one of it's, them, by far. I think it's like a lot of it's Tony's... T- it's like the desperation. It's not like I look at her as like a weak character. It's the mode of panic you go into where what, what what do you do? Like there's no exit. There's nowhere to go. She basically just gets backed up against a wall and is cowering with as, as these creatures just run at her from all angles and pull her down to her death. It's so desperate. Desperate and, and, and uh, bleak. It's bleak. Yeah. Bleak. Yeah. We said that at the same time. It very much is bleak. It's... And, yeah, that's all I can say. This scene fucked me up. The first time I saw it and those people were just piling in, I you should have seen me. I, I think my jaw was on the floor. I'm like, what the fuck? I mean, I knew something was going to happen, obviously. I did not know that was going to happen. Um, so, God, yes. Thank you for this wonderful film. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so Tom now goes to look for Tony, finds the car. But again, this town is just eerily empty. Um, and he's walking through the town and he just like happens to go past this alley and he looks down the alley and there's just this group of people just standing there staring straight at him. Right, right. Basically, um, everybody in the town is now, it's in the middle of the blood moon and what's the blood moon? It, it's taking yeah. its full effect and everyone within this town is falling under the spell of it. Based, I'm, I'm assuming based off to their exposure of looking at the moon. For how long? How long they're under the influence of the moon depends how quickly they fall under the spell. Because there's a few people who are still, you see, are still falling under it. Well, yeah, but there is, yeah. yeah. Because there's the girl, well, a girl, so one of these people rushes at Tom and attacks him, but he's able to push her to the ground. Yeah. So he, he runs away and he's, he's running. Yeah, this is what your, your whole point here is this girl comes out of the store and she is begging for help. And she's like, they, these people, they came into my house looking for my kids and they're just, you, can you, can you help me? I, I don't know what to do. Something along those lines. And he is, looks at her and all of a sudden a stream of blood starts coming down her eye. And he's like, uh, your face is bleeding. I can't help you. Yeah, I'm sorry. You're under the fucking curse of the goddamn blood moon. Um, I gotta go. Yeah, and and that whole sequence is really creepy because her dialogue. She she's as she's describing what happened. She's saying they came through our windows. Uh, uh-huh. They came at my children like sharks. I tried yes. to help them, but I, there's nothing I could do. She's basically saying that her children were devoured in front of her. Terrifying. Like it's really scary. And one thing to acknowledge right now for the for the listeners is at this point in the movie, it's cutting back and forth pretty pretty rapidly between Tom and Arletty and what's going on between the two of them as he's walking through the town looking for tony she's having her own experiences of falling under the curse of the blood moon she even at one point um as she's feeling ill she sticks out her tongue and there's a fly on her tongue and she like vomits up insects and lizards 
But it cuts back to her after this scene with with, with Tom and she's what she she's stabbing herself in the leg oh with a God, yeah. a needle. Yeah. Because she's trying to feel pain. And like you literally it's so disturbing to watch. She has her her dress pulled up and she has this like it's like a it's a straight pin. It's it's a very long needle and she's like just jabbing it into her leg and there's this one shot where she you can see her just dig it in and start twisting it around. And the skin's like pulling up and there's no yes. blood, but you see that it's in the skin. And she she's not even reacting and she throws it down and says, Fuck and you know, she gets up and this is when she goes in the mirror and opens her mouth and there's this like beetle or bug on her tongue and she's like, eh, starts screaming and like throws up and it's like lizards and worms. It is it's just you're like, what the fuck is going on? It's terrifying. It's and it's so like it's such a, a mind fuck at this point. It's so in your head. Um, and and uh, even what what you're seeing with the visuals with Tom, who is not in a place where he's losing his his state of reality yet. But as he's going through the town, and he, he he's several moments where he sees those as we mentioned the people in different areas, like just standing there looking at him. They're all looking at him. And so he starts moving quicker and he starts like running. And and finally he, he's like, he hears them coming. So he turns around and there is this cut where he turns around and it's just a shot of a horde of them running at him. And it made me fucking jump out of my fucking seat so hard, harder than any movie I've seen recently that... It's just a, such a well-placed scare. And that's when he gets attacked by one of them um, and, and scratched on the neck. But it's 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 a, it's a jump that just is so unexpected. And it's because of a good mix of sound design and just a really well-placed cut. It's, a, it's really a good moment. I thought it was a standout moment. And it's unexpected, totally unexpected. We're back with Tom. And he is walking through the town. And these two random cops show up, which... I don't know where they came from. I don't know why they're there, but they are. And they like just they tell the people, get back, get back. And they start like opening fire on the group of people, monsters, whatever you want to call the possessed people. And it's real quick because one cop looks over at the other and the other cop's eye starts bleeding. And so the other cop runs away and the cop whose eyes bleeding shoots him. And the um zombies or the possessed people come and ascend on the cop after he's been shot and eat him. I just wanted to know where'd these cops come from? I don't know. Because there's like no, there's nobody in this town for the entire movie. Yeah. I've got a theory though. Hear me out. Hear me out. So what I'm assuming, cause keep in mind, you've, you've seen other moments involving the police with, with Arletti's father's body being found. What I'm assuming is that, as we've mentioned before, that there are people outside of the town that know what's going on. And because the whole purpose of of the Messiah of evil is to spread the word that his sec- he's coming. That this that this Messiah of evil is coming, and with him is this army of the undead. And it's all starting at Point Dune, you know? And so you see the homeless man talking about it. You see with the gas station attendant, it's implied that he knows there's something more. And then when her body, when the body of her father's found, she even said, she's like, why are they lying to me? I think, in my theory, the police are aware that something is happening at point. They have to be. Yeah, right they now. have to be. And yeah. And so when they pull up and they say, get away, they're telling Tom, get out, you know, get out of here. 
because Tom is obviously not under the influence, but I'm assuming that they're tied into what the police officer said when the body was found earlier. You should really get her out of here. They're basically saying, get the fuck out of this town. Something's about to happen. Other people on the on the cusp of this town, I think, know that Point Dune is the source of something dark. And these cops are basically trying to prevent these ghouls from getting out. Because even like the homeless man said, they came down from the hills and they started, the children were eating raw meat and everything. They, I think they've tried to get out of the town before, you know? That makes sense. That makes sense. I can see that. Yeah. You know, it's just, this movie just has so much going on that even like three or four viewings, you know, aren't, I don't think is enough to catch everything that, that, that happens, especially like when you're trying to take notes as you're watching and, you know, and all that stuff. Um, so I, I can totally see that anyway. So we get this, we're, we get our, we're back to our netty. She wakes up and there's someone coming towards her and it's her dad. And it's yeah. very just, in your face is right there. All of a sudden her dad's there and he's, you can tell right away there's something not right with him, just the way he's walking. And he basically tells her the story of what's happening. And, and it happened a hundred years ago. And what it was is a, a minister with the Donner party. Am I getting that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The Donner party. They are the individuals yeah, that are lost up. Uh, plane crash. In, uh, yeah, they're forced to turn to cannibalism. Yep. Mm-hmm. This minister that was with the Donner Party shows up to this town, Port Bethlehem, which is now Port Dune, and it, they, it's the dark stranger. And he met a soldier, and you get a flashback of this. And the after the dark stranger tells the sol- soldier where he was from, what he was doing, he actually kills him. He bites the guy, and then the people that find this dark stranger that he attacks them too and, and bites bites them. Um so it's the dark stranger, this minister from the Downer Party, is the Messiah of Evil that is delivering all of this um horror and possession during the, the blood moon because he just happened to show up one hundred years ago during a blood moon. Um uh, and you get a good little flashback. It's not very. Yeah. It's not a very long flashback sequence. It's not a very in-depth flashback sequence. But you do get a little flashback sequence. It shows him show up. Shows shows his interaction with the soldier. Yeah, and you do get like a cool little even gore shot of him, like having been already cannibalized. You see like a quick shot of 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 the individual post uh, mauling. Um, and and yeah, like the, the the whole thing with this like. Because the Donner Party happened, uh, it was like pioneers uh, back in like the 1840s, and I think it was like 18. It was like several years. Like they were, they were. It was a winter that they were snowbound in the mountains, and most of them died, but the ones that survived turned to cannibalism. But what I think is really cool here is it's one of those situations where like they play off the knowledge we have of the Donner Party, because very little, like, is honestly really known about what would have happened up in those mountains. But that 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 evil that was brought down with them, uh, with the with the survivors, and that, yeah, that basically this messiah of evil is 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 the goal of this is with the blood moon now every year with this curse is to take this evil that was brought down and to spread it. To spread it around the world. And that's the goal. Every blood moon is to find a way to get it outside of just Point Dune to spread it from there. Um, but it hasn't been successful up to this point. 
It has not. And immediately after her dad telling her this story, he tries to attack her. And he grabs the paint, the buckets of paint, and just starts throwing them everywhere. So there's paint splashing the walls. And then he takes a gallon of like blue paint, dumps his hands in it, and wipes it all over his face, covers his head in blue paint. So now this image is of this guy covered in blue paint that has gone completely psycho, trying to kill his daughter. It's so uh, growling, <laughs> it, growling at her like like literally he's he's on a mission yeah. to kill her. And she gets back into the uh, she gets back into a the, like the painting workshop, and he is like coming at her full force. She has no choice. She she grabs a pair of um, shears and stabs him. In the shoulder, he fall, and this is yeah. her dad. I mean, you have to think about this. This this father is trying to like brutally like devour his daughters, and she has no choice but to stab him. He falls back, crashes against a table, and paint thinner cans of paint thinner spill out everywhere, and he gets covered in paint thinner. Um, and he still gets up and tries to attack her. And she all of a sudden has a flashback in her mind of the homeless man earlier telling her, you're going to have to kill your father. You can't bury him. You're going to have to set him on fire. So what does she do? She grabs a uh, branch out of the fireplace, sets it on fire, and sets her dad on fire. You know, we said that there are two sequences in this movie that um, should be iconic. To be real, I would add this as a third because the the whole first of all the the actor's voice, the father in general, it's it's creepy. It, he it's father. another amazing performance, and this whole sequence leading up to the attack, he's basically telling her that he's become one of them. He's become one of these creatures that he's losing all control, and then he and then he does, and then he and then he basically just becomes a, a monster and starts attacking her and that's what he's throwing the paint and she's watching in horror as he's covering himself in blue paint and the visual of this old man with this distorted face just covered in blue moving in at, moving in on his daughter it is terrifying and so when she cuts him the the red of the blood coming out against the bright blue of the paint it is just so vivid and it's just like these electric colors and then when she sets him on fire we get a full full-body torched man just flailing running and flailing and he collapses right in front of her i mean it is it is a big sequence for a 1973 film yeah they they you cannot you cannot say that they skimped out on like the the grand moments yeah this movie has a lot of yes because you 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 get a full yeah body that's like running around on fully on fire falls on the floor and his camera stays on it for several seconds as him just burning and flailing. And there's a scene of his hand, like reach trying to reach out and just drops. It's yeah, it's something I was just like watching this. I, I, I was just watching this. I was like, what the hell is happening here? I mean, a guy, guy covered in paint, like trying to attack his daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Tom. And then we get Tom shows back up and she doesn't, no, necessarily it's Tom. So she jumps out and, and she stabs him with a knife and stabs him in the arm. Yeah, with the, she- the garden shears. You get this really good shot of the shears coming up with the red paint behind it that the father had thrown. Yeah. And so he, um, so Tom, sh- she realizes this Tom and there's a scene with her and him just like in bed talking. He's in bed because he's been stabbed and they're having a conversation. And 
all of a sudden, and it's very sudden, there's no like warning that this is going to happen. All of a sudden, these ghouls start like jumping through the skylight, the windows. So there's a scene like of, I don't know, dozens of these possessed zombies like literally crashing through the skylight roof, crashing through the window. When Tom arrives at the house, he's very much in like, he is aware that shit is going down. And it's in a very much the mentality, we have to get out of here. She just set her father on fire. She stabs him and she injures him. Like the injury is remains important. Because when she stabs him with the shears, it's not just like a scratch. Like she gets him good in his shoulder and he's starting to bleed pretty heavy. But they're they're realizing that their time frame is pretty short, that they need to get out of this town. And there's a, a shot of the father's body when Tom sees the body that you see the full body just smoldering. And it is, again, an amazing effect. But yeah, so these ghouls start jumping through the glass. And, and one thing I want to say is, like, I was trying to think of, like, what do I compare these things to? Because they're definitely not Romero zombies. They're not vampires because they eat flesh. Um, I would almost say, like, they are, like, the first attempt, the first take on, like, the 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 28 days later virus or something they're like they run they jump through glass without like without injury earlier when the one cop was was uh possessed um his partner saw that he was bleeding from the eye he shoots him in the throat remember he shoots him in the throat and he he isn't even phased by it he like the uh, he gets shot in the throat and then he just may, pr- proceeds to shoot right back so these things don't seem to respond to injury um, unless they're like mortally wounded. Um, and so they're jumping through the glass and one of them tries to attack Tom and he does manage to I kill it. And when he kills it, the other ghouls just turn on it and start eating that one. Yeah. They, well, he drags it out for them to eat. Yeah. He drags it out in the, so that they can, they can escape. So they get, they get out of the house and they run down to the beach trying to get away. And all of the, I mean, as they're running, they just keep seeing these different ghouls standing at, on the beach until they're all like coming after them. So they have no choice. I mean, I, I don't know what I would do. I mean, they they literally are surrounded by these zombie things, and their only recourse is to get into the water. Um, yeah, and it's daylight at this point too. And the the thing to acknowledge is these things are supposed to. <sighs> It's only the time frame of the blood, moon the blood moon, yeah. That this curse to this religion, because it's referred to as a religion that is they're trying to spread. It's supposed to only be an effect for the course of the blood moon, and things are supposed to go back apparently to normal. Um, but it is now daylight, and and they're still being pursued, and the ghouls are not going away. The ghouls are surrounding them. They're just standing on the hills, watching them, chasing them out to the water. And Tom has that injured shoulder, and so they go out into the into the ocean, and they're swimming into the water. And Arletti comes up from the water, and she looks around, and Tom is gone. And she's screaming, "Tom, Tom!" And she even there's her old voiceover. She says, "I know that I and I know that I injured him way too bad. I, you know, it's my fault." And he, we assume he drowns, and then we get a shot of her going underwater, and it's all quiet. And so we think she drowned too. Until we get kind of a the next scene where she is now sitting in the asylum from the beginning. She's sitting outside, and we get a her voiceover. So it's a nice bookend 
the film ends the same way it begins. It's really cool. It's a book, nice bookend, a parallel bookend at that, because it's very, it ends the same way it began, as I said. So she is now saying that they did not let her drown, um, that the stranger returned and basically let her go because he knew that nobody was going to believe her. Who's going to believe a story about you know, people turning into flesh-eating zombies? And she's like, and guess what? Nobody does believe me. They don't believe me here. Um, and there's a scene where like the there's two orderly, two doctors walking, and they're even talking about her. They're like, oh, she thinks that you know this town was possessed, and oh, that's crazy. And she's now she's out, you know, so she she can come out once once a day and, and sit out. So she's outside, and she's like, yeah, nobody believes me. Um, so he was right, but they have a plan. And I need to warn people because they are going to escape from Port Dune and they are going to be everywhere. So then you get, as she's saying this voiceover, you get the shot of her coming down the same corridor that she was coming down at the beginning of the film. And she's basically saying, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to warn people, but nobody will listen. These things are going to come out, come and take, take over. And there will be, no one to hear you scream and she lets out that blood curling scream oh my god what a phenomenal like a, a chilling note to end the movie on and and one thing i think to acknowledge is that like this ending is very vague um and very sudden they go out to the the water and and they um you know basically you know they tell you that tom drowned and and so forth but um you you do see as she's giving this voiceover you do see um, the visuals of like her by one of the fires in this like white gown with her hair in this very bouffant like curled style like obviously they brought her back and they almost dressed her up in in a form of an offering or some some form of a sacrifice or some part of a ritual and um and they and Basically, like it's implied that she's some kind of tool for their overall con, their overall purpose is what I'm taking away. Because you do see the the minister come back up the beach and basically walk up to her. You don't hear any of the dialogue. You don't know anything exactly what goes on. You just see the moment, a few shots of this moment. But um, basically, her it's her duty to spread the like the word of this religion um to the world and and but no no one believes her and so thus she's trapped in the asylum but her her final voiceover is that it's her spreading the warning that the messiah of evil is coming but nobody's listening and no one and hear, yeah. she leaves with that last same line nobody hear you screaming and then the film ends uh i mean this is a film that has to be seen to be believed i think not even i mean i don't mean it in a bad way i mean that in a very good way because even our descriptions don't really do the actual visuals and imagery of this film uh, justice there is one thing i don't want to you know we're, we're approaching the two hour mark here again so i don't want to you know go, even though our fans love us they don't care but um i don't know i have an interpretation of this film or a, or a possible interpretation of this film that i was going to bring forward and i don't know if anybody will agree with me or just think that i'm totally off base with this and watching this film, I sort of can see an interpretation of this film 
not really happening. That this okay. has been all in her mind as part of her being in an asylum. She was in an asylum because of maybe yeah. some issues with her father. Who knows? So this was something that she made up in her mind. It just, to me, it seems like it's sort of plausible because the film starts with her in the asylum. It ends with her in the asylum and everything else is kind of filled in, in, in yeah. during the middle. And I'm wondering, I mean, yeah. I don't know if anybody else has ever thought of it. I'm sure they have, but I was thinking that is this, is this, did this really happen? Or is this, um, is, are we, are we watching ultimately watching this very mentally ill person's wild imagination play out? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's definitely something to think of, like how much of this was, was in our head and how much of this really happened. Uh, there's, there's also something acknowledged from the fact of like the, the character mm-hmm. of Tom and some of the like inconsistencies with oh, the overall storyline um, and the actor, the actor, Michael Greer, who is known for being um, an, uh, an early openly gay actor, by the way. But um, uh, he played both Tom and he also played the minister. He, so, I mean, and, and so that like leaves the question of how tied into all of this was Tom. Because you've got this whole story of Tom being this Portuguese art dealer and so forth and so on, but his, you know, he gives this whole backstory, but, um, you know, she comes up from the water, he's gone. And you get no closure with that. Now, now is, is there actually more to that character than we know? Is like, I mean, how many layers are there to the onion in the sense of you get what you're seeing on the surface level, but how much is implied, you know? Um, and I, I think there's something to, to think of, of of who you know who is the minister. He's never really explained, other than this whole situation with the Donner Party. You don't know any more than what you're given in that flashback and the journal dialogue. And that's great, to be honest. I like that because as the viewer, we're left with this open ended concept of you know we're being fed an absurd story and we're seeing some absurd visuals how much of it is true and how much is left to figure out. Well, that's our job is to put together the pieces of the puzzle to really figure out the story. Um, and it only adds to the experience. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that this film is not, cannot be interpreted straightforward. It, it, I mean, even there's nothing about this film that's straightforward. However, I think that when you think you have it figured out, I do think there's room for other interpretations. Like I, that did not come to me until, but my third viewing is why I was like, wait a minute. Is this Really, did this really happen, or are we just watching? Like I said, are we just watching her? The, the 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 film that we saw was this really just her imagination? Yeah. That's a that's why nobody believes her because they know she's full of shit. You've been in this asylum your whole life. This did not happen to you, and it yeah. just to me it doesn't make sense that these creature or these zombies would who are under the spell of this would pull her out of the water and, and, and let her live. It just seemed weird to me. But hey, regardless of how you want to interpret the film, it's a great film. If you're a horror fan, it should be required viewing. There are th- at least at least two, possibly three of the most terrifying, well-executed s- scenes you will ever see. Um, so again, hopefully, you if you've watched this and we you've watched you've watched it because we told you to watch it, you agree that this film deserves way more recognition. Oh my God! I mean, if listen, if you. <laughs> If you consider yourself a horror fan in general, you should you should do yourself the the privilege of watching this movie. If you're a filmmaker, I mean, because like let's 
be real. Like you, you and I as indie filmmakers, uh, if you're a filmmaker and you want to see how to make an impactful movie uh, with without having a ton of resources, because at the end of the day, this movie relies really on great realistic locations and simplicity. You know, a lot of this is just the simplistic um, elements of, like you said, the horror movie and, and the feeling of being trapped in a location with people you don't know, the supermarket sequence and the usage of sound. It does such a good job with just using the, the bare bones um, and just making and taking advantage of some really amazing sets. It, God, it's just such a well-done piece of cinema. Watch it, watch it, watch it, watch it. Watch it, watch it. I think that this film was ahead of its time. Um, was doing stuff that was way ahead of its time that no other horror films were doing. And I just wonder, and it's, I'm not going to, I just wonder, and I'd love to hear people's opinions. So when we post this and you hear this, I wonder why this film is not more well-known. Um, that's, that's my question, listeners. So when we post this, I want you to post your responses. Why do you think this film is not more well known. Yeah, yeah. I, I this is one. You know, we always try to encourage the listeners to to discuss and talk with us. Um, and and this is one. Honestly, I want to have discussions about because it leaves so many aspects open ended. There's so many questions. There's the aspect of the fact that once these people start to become these ghouls and fall under the trance, are they are they working for a greater purpose? Are they working because of this minister? Are they all under one person's power? Is it a greater curse? Like, what do you think? the 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 messiah of evil represents there's so many questions and there's so many things to talk about so please view it mandatory viewing view it we we hope that you know this this was enlightening and a good episode for you not as maybe uh humorous as some of our other ones but this is a film that does not lend a lot to a lot of humor it really it really does you already know we're hilarious oh yes this deserves to be analyzed this doesn't deserve to be mocked but this deserves there is nothing in this film that i think would even lend itself to some humor i mean i respect it too much i try I try to add a little, you know, but there are a little, some little things. But other than that, this film is not, it's so, it's so good. It's, there's nothing absurd about this film. It's, like I said, it's ahead of its time. I'm so glad I got to watch it. I'm happy you liked it. it. I would have probably not watched this one. I seriously would not. I've never really, I think I've heard the title, but I've never, it's not, not, it's not one I ever see brought up as, oh, one of the 20 bus horror films you got to watch. Just never have. I never even saw any, I've never seen a clip of the supermarket scene. I've never seen a clip of the theater scene. Yeah. None of that. So I went into this completely blind and it's because this film for some reason is just not. It should known. absolutely be listed on a, um, on a most influential horror movies and and uh you uh, you having seen rebirth and everything just just to say real quick with the like the genres that impact me and influence me um holy shit do i get a lot of influence from this uh in the in just the horde sequences and and i really think that this movie had a lot of influence on the fast zombie on the running zombie and what we saw in the dawn of the dead remake maybe not directly but you see these things are quick and they're scary and, and I, they just honestly managed to do a great job with frightening me. A 1971 P- or 1973 movie scaring me. I would not expect that today. Yeah, no, and absolutely. And even like, I think it does. I think it had a lot of effect on some of the Italian horror that came oh, yeah. after it. Yeah, for sure. So that's as Messiah of evil folks. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed our conversation. We could go on and on and on about it. I, I really could, but Sadly, we can't. <laughs> Unless you want a four-hour episode, which I simply don't have time for. <laughs> no, we're going on two hours here. 
so yeah, so that's Messiah of Evil. Great conversation, great episode. We, is there anything else you want to say about it? No, I mean, honestly, like, uh, other than just, again, encouraging listeners to view it and following up and, and contacting us and uh, telling us what they think about it. Because I'm sure that we're not going to be the only ones in this boat, uh, especially for first-time viewers. I want to hear a few of you respond just as excited as uh, as I am about talking about it, you know? So, uh, yeah, I love it. As uh, More thumbs up than I have thumbs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. Big thumbs up. Yeah. Big thumbs up. So that's that. So, okay, so our Ooh. next episode. <laughs> big news, big news. <laughs> big news. Um, we haven't done this yet. Uh, so, but we're we're going to we're going to do something a little bit different. We are going to have a guest host on our next episode. Oh my god. I mean, cue the if ever we had a sound effect, it's now, Troy. Cue some kind of trumpet sound effect or something. <laughs> yeah, so... And we are going to be discussing uh, a very quintessential, I believe, it's not really a slasher movie, but even you want to talk about whether or not... And this is why I wanted to do this film. I... When I first started this podcast, I told Roger I do really not want to do this film because it's been covered so much and it's divisive. And my opinion on on it is probably not going to be in line with a lot of other uh, gay queer podcasters, which generally, in my opinions, don't really line with a lot of gay people anyway. I it, uh, because I I don't know I don't know why. But so I was like, Roger, I'm not we're not doing this film because a I'll piss people off and b it's been done. But we're going to do it anyways because we're bringing in a guest host. We're going to t- we're going to talk about the classic slasher film from 1983 called Sleepaway Camp. Sleepaway fucking camp. Iconic. Iconic and apparently now problematic, problematic. because of the ending. <laughs> Don't even get me started on it, please. We'll save that for the episode, but we are going to bring in a guest host because I felt like this is a heavy one to talk about. So I think because I know there are people that are very passionate on both sides that, hey, this is a classic horror movie. Very, And then there's people that, oh, no, this movie needs to be canceled. It's horrible. It, it's, it represents the trans community in such a horrible way. Blah, 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 blah on both sides. Uh, so I wanted to bring in another voice. So we are doing that. So, yeah. Yeah, a moderator. A moderator. <laughs> who probably has his, who probably has his own opinions on the film. He is a huge he's a huge yeah. horror fan as well. And we would you just yes. say who it is? Just okay, say so it. we Let's we are bring our very first guest that we are bringing on to discuss the with camp is Chris Jenner. Who else could it be? And yeah, and if you don't know who Chris <laughs> Jenner is, we both had the huge pleasure of privilege. Privilege, pleasure of working with Chris on um my last film, Teacher Shortage. Roger got to act alongside of him and and kiss him gently and softly on his supple lips. And I got to <laughs> direct him and, and work with him in that capacity. Great guy, super talented, A huge uh, talent. He does it. What doesn't he do? He sings. He sings. He dances. He dances. He's an actor. He's, an actor. I mean, he's got that song. A welcome to the hollow. It's coming. We're gonna play the song. I bet you anything we're playing a segment from that song in the next episode. We will. It's a good song. But we haven't been... But you know what? It'll also be like the first time since we filmed Teacher Shortage that we will kind of be reunited. Oh my God. So I can't wait. It's going to be fun. So yeah. So that'll be our next episode. So yeah, we just... Like I said, I... I, I, I 
Sleepaway Camp is a film I was very hesitant to cover. Um, And I told Roger that at the beginning. However, I think it's an important film to cover. And because it's divisive with the queer community, I wanted to have more than one other voice on, if that makes sense. Well, and I think it's important to say, you know, when it comes to to films and their in their interpretations of things and how they present things for, and movies from certain eras, it's important to be able to discuss these things openly on either side of the spectrum and, and be respectful of each other, but also like keeping in mind that a movie from 1983 was coming from a completely different mentality than something in 2021, and you've got to be able to look back on that and acknowledge that and and realize the amount of progress that's happened since then. And we'll obviously go into that. And it's it's weird to me that people can't do yeah, that. Yeah. And this is like I said, where I may piss people off because I personally feel if you if you if you don't understand that a movie made in 1960 is not going to follow the same social progress or or, or social ideals or expectations that you we have now or you think we should have now that's you know I mean yeah and don't be throwing in don't be throwing in dress to kill afterwards either because oh well, <laughs> well okay so it's psycho dress to kill and sleepaway camp are the three movies that to me are are starting you're starting to hear people say oh they're transphobic they need to be canceled you know what we've how many how many fucking movies have we had where a straight person has been a killer yeah are we trying to say that a trans person can't be a killer or a gay person can't be a killer? I mean, and are we trying to say that that's not a, a motivation in the sense of how these people are treated? You know, and as somebody is, I am a huge advocate for the the, the trans community. I oh, I, you you are huge, very yes. outspoken. But if we can't use something as a as a reasonable tool for explaining a plot device in a movie, then that's just not realistic. People are are affected by these things. People are affected by these things because of how they're treated by other people. And that certainly would apply in 1983. And let's not get too into it because we're going to go into the meat of this. But you and I will not, I'll tell you this, uh, I'm a huge advocate for the trans community and you and I will not be at each other's throats no matter what your angle. Oh no, we're going to be very respectful. I get get what you're saying on this and I think you and I are actually probably – in a very uh, coming from the same place, to be honest, and I will, and I also, I mean, I can also acknowledge why people would find it problematic. Absolutely. There's, there's the whole aspect of it being used solely as shock. Value. Absolutely, but does that mean that this movie should be uh, erased uh, and and canceled for those reasons? Well, that's what we're going to discuss. Yeah, so we're gonna we we're gonna it. stop it there because yeah. I don't want to get too far. Yeah. This. So if it's something you don't want to listen to because you already know you might not, it, that's fine. Yeah. But I feel like we're gonna cover it, yep. and we're gonna yeah. touch on some touchy touch yes. touchy topics. So until then, until next week with Sleepaway Camp and our lovely, lovely Chris Jenner, who we the ageless today. Chris Jenner, the ageless Chris Jenner. So now he has to come on because we've already announced him. Chris, you hear that? We've already announced you. You're yeah. coming on. He's like Peter uh, which, Pan. He just preserved in youth. All right. So, yeah. So that's that. So we are right at two hours. So we are going to bid you adieu. Bid you adieu. And please, guys, you know the drill. Like it. Comment. Give us some love any way you can. But please, for the love of God, message us and comment and let us know what you think about Messiah of fucking evil. Yes. We want to know. We want to know. We want to hear. Until then, though, we love y'all. We'll see you next week. Oh, and don't be stingy with those five-star Apple podcast ratings. They help. Come on now. Look at us. We're giving you all of our blood, sweat, and tears, including tears of blood, Messiah of evil. (laughs) All righty. Farewell. Good night, good people.